What's up, beautiful family? How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, welcome to the well. Glad y'all are here. New seating arrangement means more space, but it also means y'all are in the spit zone, so be ready for a shower. Now, ain't nobody going to sit up here the next, like, 20 weeks, watch. Uh, hey, it is good to be with you all. Uh, we had uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter all within the past 72 hours, and it was also raining this morning, and y'all are still here. All of the spiritual ones, because y'all know how Austinites be, right? Like, as soon as it even looks like it's severe, they're at home. So, hey, thanks for being here this morning. Glad y'all are here. Uh, I'm excited to start a new series today in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I think it's really powerful for us. And so, uh, I love studying the person of Jesus uh, with other people and kind of looking at what Christ has done. And so, uh, I'm just excited to dive in. So, um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them. We'll be in Mark 1 today, and we'll be there the whole morning, so you can camp out there. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, the ushers will be coming forward. And if you need one, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to take and to keep that. And so please feel free to bring that home and to use that uh, at home. You can also follow along on your smartphone. You can uh, follow those instructions there. Uh, We say this every week. We mean it. We want your eyes on the Word. As we're studying the person of Christ, I think that there's so much to be revealed in him and in his character uh, that we won't be diving into completely every single aspect. And so I know that the Lord wants to speak to us through the word, so I would encourage you just to use that, follow along with that, all right? Mark chapter 1, this is the first gospel that was actually completed, and it's also the shortest gospel, Uh, and Mark was writing to the Romans trying to show them that Jesus was indeed God, the Messiah that was to come. In fact, a very easy breakdown, if you go to the next slide here, is this chart, is that every gospel writer kind of had a different intention in what they were writing, and so they were writing to different people with different emphases, which is why as you uh, read through the gospels, you'll feel these different almost like thrust in the Gospels at large. And so we see Matthew is trying to highlight for the Jews that Jesus is the king. He's the the greater David in a way. He kind of looks like a lion there, like this powerful man. The emphasis is actually on Jesus' sermons. We have the Sermon on the Mount and other sermons by Jesus that the other writers don't include in there because this would have spoken to the Jews. We see a genealogy in there because you have to know where a king comes from and etc. And so every single writer is a little bit different. Luke is trying to highlight Jesus's humanity for the Greeks, and John is trying to highlight Jesus's divinity for the world at large. And so as we zoom into the Gospel of Mark, this is what we are thinking about. If you go to the next slide there, this is the portrait of Christ that Mark is trying to paint out. He's trying to show us that Jesus is a servant. He kind of represents an ox, the animal of an ox there, because he's just grinding away, right? Not asking for anything, not trying to uh, promote himself in any way. He's this humble servant. The style of Mark is actually that of a preacher. You'll feel a lot of like punchy statements in the gospel of Mark because he's trying to communicate with swiftness and effectiveness who Jesus is. You see more miracles in Mark than other ones, and Jesus does not have a genealogy in Mark. Why? Well, because a servant doesn't need one. It doesn't really matter where the servant is from as long as he is serving well. And so this is what we are looking at in the gospel of Mark, kind of the overview of how this uh, gospel is even going to feel to us. Another quick note before we dive 
dive in is that we won't be covering every single line in the Gospel of Mark. There's some stories we'll be skipping over because when we did Luke's parables, they're actually repeats in a lot of ways. Uh, there are other ones where we're doing this for 11 weeks leading up to Easter, and so there's 16 chapters, so we won't go through everything, but we are going to cover the themes of Mark at large and sort of the overview of the Gospel as a whole. But if you're looking for something to read in your devotional time, like, ma'am, if you're not reading anything right now, Mark would be a pretty fire book to read because you'll be able to walk along with us and kind of see what's happening in groups or whatever it may be. All right, you following? Y'all ready? This is the Gospel of Mark. This is why it's written. This is how it feels. And so you're going to feel it immediately in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight or make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so immediately what you feel in the Gospel of Mark is this pickup of action in a lot of ways. There's no real preparation. There's no explanation of like how things came to be. There's no real time to reflect in a lot of ways. It's just like, hey, Jesus is God. You need a Savior. It is him. What you going to do about it? That's how the feeling of Mark is right away, right? Like, y'all out here talking about genealogies, we ain't got time for that. Like, Jesus is God, what's up, right? And that's where Mark is coming from. A few things about this that I love from the jump. First of all, look at that in verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel. It's not the gospel, it's the beginning of the gospel. Why? Because our stories are actually still writing the good news of Jesus even today. Every single soul that is brought to him is a soul that his blood is poured out and paid for. And so we're still living in the gospel story even today. This was the beginning of the gospel. This was the new season that was entering in. The, the way that Christ will be exalted, God will be uh, explained and shown forth in ways that we've never even seen before. This is the beginning of it. Are you playing in the story of the gospel? Because it's still going today, right? All of us who are in Christ are invited into this story at large. And so what Mark from the jump says is, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. That word Christ there is the, the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which just means the anointed one. He's the one you've been waiting for, the promised one that was to come, the one who has been prophesied about from Genesis 3.15 all the way throughout the Old Testament. He's now here on the scene. He's the Messiah, right? Not only is he the Messiah, he's actually the Son of God. He is God. God himself. And so Mark right away starts exposing the identity of Christ. In fact, what we see is Jesus is so powerful, so awesome, so exalted, so holy, so beautiful that John the Baptist, even though he was Jesus's older cousin, says that he is unable to even bend down and untie this man's shoe. This was actually a task that was given only to the uh, lowest Gentile slaves at the time of those days. And in 
in a familial culture, if you're older, you have more authority naturally. But John is saying, hey, I don't have any authority. This man came before me. He was at the beginning of the world. He is so holy, so beautiful, so awesome. I cannot get low enough to lift him up high enough. I am unworthy to even untie his shoe. Jesus from the jump is showing this power, this authority, this beauty in a lot of ways. And what you see in this is actually this bleeds the grace of God all throughout this story at large. Because what we're actually jumping in on won't uh, hit us as uh, present day readers as much. But they're actually coming out of a season that historians call the, the season of silence, right? There was 400 years between the last book in the Old Testament, which was Malachi, and when Jesus steps on the scene here in Mark. And so just like the Jews between Genesis and Exodus, there were 400 years where there was no book of the Bible written. There was no real uh, voice of the Lord in a lot of ways. The prophets weren't coming. And so it felt like silence in a lot of ways, but God wasn't silent. What he was doing was he was preparing a deliverer. Just like between Genesis and Exodus, God was preparing Moses to end up delivering the people from physical slavery into the promised land. So between Malachi and Mark, he's preparing Jesus, the greater Moses, to deliver people from a greater sort of slavery, slavery to sin, to death, to Satan, and to deliver us into the promised land. God wasn't silent by any means. God was active. He was doing something behind the scenes. Moses baptized them through the Red Sea is what Peter tells us, but Jesus will baptize us spiritually with the Holy Spirit. This is a greater deliverance in a way. Jesus is coming on the scene like a boss, like, hey, we up in here, right? What are we going to do, right? How do you t take this? What do you believe about me? And this wasn't by mistake or accident. We see God preparing the whole time. In fact, there are little verses and hints in here that we can so easily kind of skim over. But if you look, for example, in verse 5, it says, all the country of Judea is coming out. We can easily read past this, but God is literally preparing every single person to be ready to make a decision to receive or to reject King Jesus because all of the country was coming out, having their hearts prepared, ready to receive what God was wanting to do in that season. Will they follow this Christ and turn their hearts to him or will they reject him? In fact, maybe even this is why we're in church today. Maybe God has been preparing from eternity past certain things to get you to a point to be ready to receive or to reject the Christ. This is what he was doing all throughout many stories in the Bible. It may have felt like God was silent for 400 years, but he wasn't. He was preparing every single heart to be ready to hear and receive. It may feel like God is silent in your life, but he's not. <laughs> Maybe he's working in the background so ready to prepare you that you may receive what God is trying to call you into next in your life. For some of you, that may be a relationship with Christ. For some of you, that may be what he's calling you to on mission with him. God is not silent, though. He's active. And so even where we don't see him moving, he's clearly moving, readying all people to receive the king. This is what we see in the gospel of Mark. And so it may feel silent, but he's not. Mark then immediately hits us with, do you trust him? What are you going to do about this claim of kingship, this claim of the Messiah, this claim of the king, of God? 
What are you going to do about it? Will you ready yourself for him? See, the beautiful thing about this even is that the Jews in this context had rejected God as being their king. The Jews were wanted someone else's king and then ultimately started serving other gods, and that's what led them into this 400 years of exile in the first place. And so what you would expect to read in this story, in the justice of God, is that God was preparing his son to come down to the world and to condemn people in their sin. That's what it should read if we're reading about justice in a lot of ways. But God's not preparing a people for that. He's preparing a people to be delivered from their sins, to receive the grace of God by the Son Jesus. He doesn't come into the world to condemn them in their sin, but rather to free them from their sin. This is a beautiful shift of what we should even expect of God in a lot of ways. God is on the scene ready to draw people into relationship with himself. Are we ready for it? This is what he's asking. How does your heart respond to that? Because we too should be condemned in our sin. And yet God in his benevolent grace says, no, 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 I want them into relationship with me. I'm going to make a way where we severed that relationship with God. He will restore it. And it happens by the coming of Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who was to come that will make us right with God. This is what Mark is preparing us for. He is a God of redemption. He wants to redeem us. This is what Jesus steps on the scene and shows us immediately. God wasn't silent. He was working in the background the whole time to ready salvation. God is not silent in your life, friends. He's working in the background to ready salvation. Are we looking for him? Are we going out to the wilderness to find him? This is what they were doing. And so now we pick it up in verse 9. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so like nine wild things happen in this like three verses, right? First of all, Jesus is baptized, which is like, duh, it says that, yes. But baptism is actually really, really important here. In fact, it's mentioned six times in the first nine verses in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus obviously didn't need to be baptized to symbolize his union with God. He was God. Nor did Jesus need to be baptized to symbolize the forgiveness of sins. He had no sin. That's what we get baptized for, is to highlight our union with God and the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. No, what Jesus does is he gets baptized to symbolize his union with us, his union with humanity, that he's saying, I am becoming like a man. I am wearing flesh. This God has now stepped down onto the seam in flesh, and I am literally unifying with all of the people around that they may be freed from their sin. Jesus is showing his humanity here. This is powerful, but not just his humanity. The Father then opens the skies and shows his divinity. And so once again, we see the God-man right away, even in baptism, which a quick side note, okay, baptism is important, y'all, right? We see it right here. If Jesus, who got baptized, who was perfect, who did not need to get baptized, if he's the one that did that, and then the last thing he says to us is, hey, to make disciples and be baptized— This is an important command, 
right? We're celebrating baptisms in two weeks, but even next week we have a baptism class, which I would encourage you, if you have questions about that, man, baptism is something special, right? While when you get baptized, the skies may not crack open, right? And the Father is speaking down, which for your sake, you better hope they don't unless you could pay for Campbell's new roof, right? But while that may not happen for you, there is something about walking in obedience to God that brings the blessing of God and the presence of God in your life. And so if you are a Christian and have not been baptized, I would encourage you, hey, what's holding you up, right? Like, like what's the fear? Jesus here gets baptized. He later commands that we would all get baptized. It's mentioned six times in the first nine verses. It's really important. Whatever fear you have, I promise the blessing of the grace of God that you experience will be far greater than that fear that's keeping you from walking out in faith in that way. And so this is what God calls us into. I mean, if you have questions, come to the class. Ask that. Jesus gets baptized. We get to symbolize with him in that, right? So secondly, though, we don't just see the importance of baptism, but we see the Trinity right here from the jump of Jesus' ministry. We see God the Father speaking to his Son. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon his Son. We see Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, right? The whole Godhead, we believe that there is one God that exists in three persons. The whole Godhead is present for the beginning of the ministry of Jesus because the whole Godhead is active in the reconciling of the world to himself. We see this right away. This is right from the jump. This is very beautiful. And in fact, what we also see is this very beautiful message that the father looks at the son and says, hey, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father spoke that over the son before the son did an ounce of ministry. You tracking with that? right? It is what Jesus or who Jesus is that brings pleasure to God, not what he has done that brings pleasure to God. If you are a child of God, it is who you are that brings pleasure to God, not what you do that brings pleasure to God. Some of you need to rest and release that burden because we try and try and try, but before Jesus does anything, he says, this is my son. This is why God finds pleasure. And if you are a son of God, if you are a child of God, then God finds pleasure in you, friends, not because of what you do. In fact, you can't even measure up anyway because of what Jesus has done for you, right? But this is beautiful. It releases that burden for us trying to work our way toward God's pleasure. No, God is pleased before any ministry is even done here. This is beautiful. God is pleased with you if you believe in him. This is the scandalous grace of our God. You can rest, friends, being a child of God. This is powerful. Then it keeps going. Verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Talk about a plot shift, right? Like everything's awesome, the Father's speaking, the Spirit's descending, and then all of a sudden he's in the wilderness wrestling with Satan and uh, temptations and wild animals, right? Like, bruh, dang, okay? First of all, what we see is we actually see the Spirit driving Jesus as he drove Jesus into the wilderness. That word for drove there is actually the same word that Mark uses when Jesus cast out demons of people. So this is an aggressive, a really strong word in a way. Why does it use this? Well, it's showing that Jesus is being obedient to the Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. 
And Jesus is being obedient to God here, following him out into the wilderness. Secondly, though, we see this beautiful explanation of who the Christ is, because what we have before us is actually a new creation of sorts. It's a a greater Israel, is what Jesus is. Here's what I mean by that, okay? We don't have time to go through Genesis chapter 1 through 3, but if you're even loosely familiar with the story, hopefully you get this analogy here. In Genesis 1, if you're familiar with it, we have the beginning is how it starts, And what we see is the Spirit hovers over the water in verse 2, and then God speaks, and ultimately humanity is created, history is launched, man is tested, but then man fails that test. Well, in the same way, in Mark chapter 1, we see the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, and we see from there the Spirit hovers over the water, and then God speaks, and a new kind of human is launched, a human that doesn't undo everything in this world, but restores it, and we see history literally altered. We say it's 2019 because we started it back with Jesus and what he did, right? History is altered by this man. This man is tested, and yet this man actually passes the test, unlike the other Adam, In a similar way, we don't have a chart up, but Moses, he leads the Israelites into the Red Sea. Peter says he baptizes them in the Red Sea. God speaks about his love for them. God then leads them into the wilderness. But for 40 years, they continually fail the test of God. But here comes Jesus. God speaks once again. He's baptized. He's led into the wilderness by God, but he for 40 days continually passes the test of God. We see a greater Adam and a greater Israel in a way. Jesus is showing that he's a new type of human, a better Israel that can draw all nations to himself, that he will not fail the test of God. He will pass the test of God. He will walk in perfect obedience where we have lacked that. We see immediately this new human among us. Thirdly, practically for us, what we see in this baptism to temptation thing is that, man, sometimes, right, you could be on the highest highs, the Spirit speaking, stuff like that, and then immediately be driven to the lowest lows, temptation and things like that, right? Like, like don't forget that this happens to us too, friends. People didn't tell me that when I got saved, and I was like, God, you're so good. And then, like, you know, two weeks later, I'm like, why am I suffering like this, right? And it was confusing to me. There may be highs, but there will be valleys too. And it's tempting in those valleys to look back and to say, what the heck, God? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. Why am I feeling like this? Not realizing that it was God's very love for you that drove you out into the wilderness in the first place. Why? Because maybe he's trying to do something in your life. Maybe he's trying to prepare something for you. What we often confuse love for is we confuse it with feelings. And God cares more about your holiness than your feelings. Because when we focus on feelings, they may give us some momentary satisfaction, but long term they will crush us if we put too much hope in them. But if we focus on holiness, it may give us momentary pain, but eternal joy in the long run. And God cares more about our eternity than this immediate present that we're in. God may be driving you, friends, out into the wilderness that you may even experience him. It may not be the lack of his love for you. It may be his very love for you that's driving you in that way. And so we can't forget that when we're in those seasons. And we can't confuse our theology to say, well, this shows that God isn't pleased or doesn't love me. No, no, no. God was pleased and loved the son, and that's the very thing that drove him out. God may be pleased with you and love you, and it may be the very thing that drives you out. Don't uh, be confused if after a high you experience temptation. The question is, do you trust where the Holy Spirit is leading you, and are you willing to follow him out into the wilderness? 
Because where he leads you is where joy will be had for you in the long run. If you trust God, he's a good God, as we'll see even in the rest of this. And so what we see in Adam in Genesis chapter 3 is he's in a place of perfection, and yet Adam fails. Jesus is in the middle of the wilderness, a place where there is chaos, and yet he succeeds Right? I love that it even highlights that there's like wild beasts out there. Right, It's like he was in utter chaos. Uh, one of our elders, Jake Brown and Nick Brandt, they'd be trying to get me to go hunting with them. And I'm like, I ain't going. There's wild beasts out there, yo. <laughs> so this shows you shouldn't be out there, right? Jesus is in the midst of chaos, y'all. He's in all this drama, and yet he still passes the test of God, even amongst the wild beasts, right? Here we go. So now he jumps, and he goes into his ministry, And so we say, well, what does he start his ministry with, right? Like, does he do a healing or a miracle? Does he pick his start in five, right? No. He starts it off actually right where John left off in verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Once again, there's no time to reflect. It's an urgent uh, call. The kingdom of God has come. It says, hey, repent and trust in me. That word to repent, I know it has a negative connotation in our culture, but it just means to to turn around, to stop going one direction and start going the other direction. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, stop following these other truths, but follow the good news, my truth. It's a better news in a lot of way. Jesus' first mission is to invite us into the dance, into the game, into the story of God. He says, come follow me, right? In fact, all these other gods, what they say is, hey, show me that you're worthy and then I'll let you be on my team. But the first thing we see Jesus say is, hey, come on my team and then I will make you worthy. We see a big difference between Jesus here because he then goes and begins to gather his team. And look at how he shows this to them. Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I love this. In verse 17, it says, you will become fishers of men. This means that they're not fishers of men yet, right? God doesn't uh, uh, call the qualified, but rather he qualifies the called. Jesus says, I want you in, and then I will make you become what your true identity is. We don't clean ourselves up and then go to God. God rather calls us onto his team, and then he does the work to bring out our true identity. This is beautiful. This is countercultural. This is against what we would naturally believe that a God is like. We would think we would have to appease God. No, no, no. Our God comes and he says, I am for you right? I will come and do what it takes in this way. Jesus is teaching them, letting them learn with him. And so if you feel the call of God today, realize you don't have to have it all together. God will bring you in and then begin to work that out in you in a lot of ways. But if you decide to drop everything, run and follow Jesus, then he will make you walk in your true identity. You feel me? This is important, right? That we would actually believe in this. Notice how the disciples left what was important to them. They left their literal jobs to follow Christ in this. Are you willing to leave what's important to you to follow Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that. 
Are we willing to leave what we cling to as our identity, what we cling to as our hope? Are we willing to leave those things that we may follow Christ? Jesus beckons us to follow him for a greater identity, but we have to be willing to leave it all and follow him. Are we ready for that? Do we trust him enough in that? Well, he's going to show us why we can trust him, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read the rest of what we'll read today, because it's a string of stories together that shows he is trustworthy, that shows he's God. And they went and took Pernum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. All of this authority with Jesus burst on the scene. He's a man with authority. I love what Daniel Aiken said. He's a pastor and a biblical commentator. He said, The demon recognizes Jesus in terms of his humanity and his deity. The Nazarene, Jesus says, like the demon even knows where Jesus is born, right? And the Holy One of God. Even the demons stand in awe of the God-man. Why? Because the demons were with that same God-man that cast them out of heaven before the world was formed, right? They were there or at, at creation. They knew this God. They had seen this God before. Now he's come down in flesh. It's us who are amazed because we haven't seen God like that. But the demons are amazed. They've seen this God's power, and they know who he is. The God-man become flesh. Jesus burst on the scene, showing that he is indeed God, the promised one that was to come. He literally can pass temptation. He can lord over demons. He can call forth disciples. He can humble even some of the greatest men that ever lived, like John the Baptist. He can destroy sickness. Jesus is over, loved over by the Father, spoken over. The Spirit descends on this man. Mark 1 shows us that Jesus has authority over everything. Jesus has authority over everything. Yes, Jesus is coming to be a servant, to bless and to please people, to give himself to others, but he's a servant king that has authority over all things and yet lays down that kingship that he may serve us as well. This is a beautiful, beautiful God in the flesh of Jesus that we see here. We see this power 
And then in verse 35, I love this, because there's all this rush in this chapter, almost like frantic movement, right? Like, who's John the Baptist? It doesn't matter. He's out there baptizing dudes, right? Or who are the disciples? Don't matter. They're on team now, right? Who is Jesus? He's God. What you gonna do about it? Run, 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 right? There's all this frantic pace. In fact, if you caught the word immediately is used over and over and over again, The word immediately is actually used 77 times in the New Testament and only 83 times in the Bible at large. And so it's pretty much only used in the New Testament. Outside of the Gospels, it's only used once. So the word immediately is almost exclusive to the life of Jesus. There's this rush with it in a lot of ways. The Gospel of Mark uses the word 35 times. And in Mark chapter 1, it's used nine times. Another way to say that is that 12% of the usage of the word immediately in the whole Bible is in Mark chapter 1. It's frantic, y'all. There's this burst on the scene, and yet in verse 35, Jesus goes to a desolate place where it's quiet in the middle of the night. Repetition, repetition. We get it, right? He's by himself. But it's showing us in the midst of all this chaos, he steps away to be with God. I don't care how busy your life is. It ain't that busy, (laughs) right? And if you feel the frantic pace, maybe it's time for you to step away and to spend some time with the Father. Because I love what Jesus does after this. The disciples come in the next verse and they say, Lord, everyone is looking for you. They rebring this immediacy to this. And he says, hey, let's go somewhere else. I'm supposed to preach the gospel there too. And he goes, he does missions. It's like he's heard from God. There's this clarity there, right? And so what does Mark 1 want us to see? What is this setting us up for? What is the gospel of Mark trying to prepare our hearts for? Well, it shows us a ton of phenomenal things, right? In it, we actually see a beautiful model for ministry that Jesus actually models for us. Because Jesus baptized, was tempted, evangelizes, makes disciples, teaches others, heals, serves an area, rested, and then did missions. We see this really beautiful model of ministry. So one of the questions we could say is, hey, if we haven't been baptized, why not are we participating with the God that we say is our Lord? Is he really? Or do we still want to hold on to things in our life? If we're not sharing our faith or looking for people that do not know him or resting in the Sabbath rest of the Father, like here's the model of ministry Jesus has. We see all this in chapter one. Christ is our example, engaged in the mission of God. But secondly, it shows us who Jesus is, right? In verse chapter one, it says, Jesus is the Christ. Then it says he's the son of God. He's the Lord, the mighty one, the worthy one, the one who baptizes with the spirit, the spirit anointed one, the beloved son, the one whom pleases God, the one who brings the kingdom, teacher, the one with authority, holy one of God, caster out of demons, healer, cleanser, and this is all just in Mark chapter one, and I didn't even write everything up there, right? What is this showing us from the jump? Our intro to Jesus is that he has authority over everything. He is everything that we need Will we give ourselves to him. Which of these do you need right now? Jesus is that for you if you give yourself to him. Tim Keller, who is a pastor and an author in New York, he says this about Mark chapter 1. He says, the gospel is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king. Not just someone with power and authority to tell you what needs to be done, but someone with the power and authority to do what needs to be done and then to offer it to you as good news. You see that Jesus is over everything and would humble himself over everything that you may overcome anything, friends. 
This is what it's showing us. He's over everything, yet he would humble himself under everything that we may overcome anything if we choose to trust and to believe in him. Though Jesus passed the test in the wilderness, he would eventually die just like Adam as if he had failed that test in the wilderness. And though Jesus would give himself to his disciples, he would be betrayed like he was a sinner. And though Jesus touched the unclean, he wouldn't even be touched while he was on the cross. As the sponge gets elevated, no one touches him as if he was the most unclean person that ever existed. And though Jesus was the healer of many, he would be the one that would take on the sins of the whole world. Why? Because Jesus is everything that we need and all that we deserve, Jesus takes upon himself that we may find life in him. This is what Mark 1 is screaming at us from the jump, y'all. Jesus is good. When God told Adam, hey, obey me about that tree, and if you don't, then you'll die, Adam failed the test, and he died. Jesus also, or God also told Jesus, hey, obey me about that tree, the cross, and you will die. And Jesus obeyed. Why? So that all of us who deserve that death may now have life in Christ, y'all. Come on. That better, like, can I get like three witnesses? Are y'all still with me? <laughs> This is the gospel, y'all, for real. This is the gospel of Jesus, that you are free from your sin because of what he has done for you. And so what's your response to him? Will you let him in? Will you let him serve you, friends? Will you give yourselves? This is what Mark is asking us from the jump. Do you trust Jesus? When he says, hey, follow me and I will let you walk in your true identity, do you follow him or do you still try to cling on to the old life? He's saying, I am a better king. Will you let him serve you? Will you let him fix the parts that are broken? Will he be allowed to come into your heart and be a servant? He wants to do that. Mark shows us he's a servant. But he's not just a servant. He's also a king. And he wants to rule your heart. But he's a good king that will lay down his life for you. This is what Mark wants us to see. He has authority over all things in our life. And if we try to hold on to our own authority, hey, listen, God will let us do that. But I've never seen a human have authority over demons or over death or over temptation. And so good luck overcoming that in your life. (laughs) Only Christ is able to do this. But as we give our lives to him, he accomplishes this for us that we may have life in him forever. It may be scary. The spirit may drive you out into the wilderness sometimes, y'all. But do you trust him? We have a good God that will not lead you to destruction, but lead you to life everlasting I want us to end with a story that I think is a great analogy of this. There was an author, George MacDonald, who wrote about 150 years ago. He wrote a story called The Princess and the Goblin. Irene is the protagonist, and she's an eight-year-old who one day goes up to the attic of her house, and uh, she finds a fairy grandmother. It's her fairy grandmother. And every so often, she goes up there, and she sees this fairy grandmother. She appears. Now, often, she's actually not there. In fact, usually when she's looking for her, she doesn't show up. But when she least expects it, that's when the fairy grandmother shows up. Hello. We see who this is a picture of already, right? Y'all be looking for God, like, I'm ready to worship. Nothing. Then the one week, you're like, oh, I guess I'll go to church. And you're like, oh, right? God meets us when we're not ready often, right? And so one day, the fairy grandmother, she says, hey, you know, I have an idea. I'm going to give you a string, and I want you to hold the string, and I'm going to hold the yarn on the other end of the string. I will keep the ball. But I can't see it, says Irene. No, the grandmother says. The thread is too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. So with reassurance, Irene tests the thread 
Now listen, said the grandmother, if you ever find yourself in any danger, you must take off your ring, put it underneath the pillow of your bed, and then lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful. It will lead me to you, grandmother, I know, says Irene. Yes, said the fairy. But remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed, and you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, while you hold it, I hold it too. A few days later, she's in her bed, and goblins come into her house. Talk about children's stories 150 years ago. They were just going in. They ain't care. Like, yeah, goblins, they up in here, right? And so they're snarling in the hallway, right? And she remembers what her fairy grandmother says. So she takes off the ring, puts it under her pillow, begins to follow the thread, knowing that it will lead her to safety. But to her dismay, it doesn't lead her to safety. It leads her outside and then into the very cave of the goblins. And as she's going through the cave of the goblins, it leads her to this pile of rocks and it dead ends at that pile of rocks. And so she's sitting there and she thinks, well, at least I can follow the thread backwards to get out. But as she turns around, there is no thread backwards. The thread only works going forward. And so she begins to wail and cry, not confused as why her grandmother would lead her in this way. But after crying, she realizes that there's only one way to follow the thread. It's to tear down the wall of stones. And so she begins to tear it down stone by stone. And soon she's doing so much tearing down that it says her fingers begin to bleed. But she's still tearing down the stones, following the thread. Suddenly she hears a voice. It's her friend, Curdie, who has been trapped in the goblin's cave. Curdie is astounded and asks, why, however, did you come here? Irene replies that her fairy grandmother sent her, and I think I found out why, she said. And following the thread, she created an opening, and Curdie starts to climb out. But Irene keeps going deeper into the cave. Curdie objects, where are you going in that way? That's not the way out. I've already tried that. I know, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. And indeed, the thread proved trustworthy, for as she went right through the cave of the goblins, it led her into a castle of safety, and then the grandmother came and destroyed the goblins for her. Then she was not destroyed in the process. I think that this is a beautiful story of what it's like to follow our God. In fact, I love what this author said in the book. He said, you will be dead so long as you refuse to die. Tweet. Right? <laughs> Whatever he calls you to, he's already shown authority over. Jesus' kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you, that you will never be crushed. He followed his thread to the cross, that you may follow your thread into his arms, friends. It may lead us through the wilderness. It may be confusing sometimes. It may lead us into seasons of needing rest or into dropping our nets. But if we follow that string, it will assuredly lead us to God, for he's the one that holds the end of that rope. Are you following it? Or will you turn around and start to go your own way and forget the thread and try to find your own way back? This is what Mark 1 challenges us with. I have authority. Will you follow me? I am a servant. I want to serve you, but will you let me? I am a king. I want to rule. I am a humble ruler. Will you let me? This is what we have to believe. And will we follow what God is calling us into? Will we follow that string right into the arms of our Savior? I pray that would be true of all of us in here, that we would trust our God. I love you guys. Let's pray. Man, God, thank you for the truth of this. God, I pray that anything right now that we are unwilling to give authority to you 
too, where we try to hold on to our own authority, would you challenge us with that, Holy Spirit? Would you reveal in our hearts where we are not allowing you to serve, where we are not allowing you to rule as king? Will we confess our fears to you, God, that it is scary to follow you in the wilderness sometimes? It does feel like we're peeling away rocks and our our fingers are bleeding and we're confused, but God, would you help us to trust you? Will you allow us to walk in you, God, to give you authority, Jesus? You are worthy of all authority over our lives, and you already have it over this whole world, Jesus. Would we trust that? Help us to run towards you. God, I pray for those who do not know you in here today. Whatever fear may be holding them back, whatever ways they're unwilling to follow that thread, God, will you please, God, Show them that you are trustworthy. Friends, he is trustworthy. He bled and died that we may have life forever. God, for those of us who have life forever, would we truly surrender all things to you? Thank you for being a godly servant king. Would we see this, the rest of the gospel of Mark, and give our lives over to you? We pray this in your precious and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.